When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Big welcome to you uh, for tonight's debate, Stop Bashing Christians. Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country. Our first speaker this evening is George Carey. Uh, George Carey was appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1991 and remained in the post until 2002. So, George Carey, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I'm sure many of us had difficulty getting here, so I got here just in time, and it's good to be here and to take part in this debate. Now, some of you may be very puzzled by the title. Surely it can't be the case that Christians, of all people, are being bashed in a country where even today 72% of the population claim to be Christian. And even if there is some basis for the marginalising of uh, Christian believers, some might assume it must be those on the fringes of mainstream faith, evangelical fundamentalists who deserve to be bashed. And we, mainstream Christians, Anglicans, Catholics, Methodists, and so on, have nothing to fear. I want to question that this evening. The great poet Dryden has a line that goes like this. Whatever is, is right. The purblind man sees but a part of the chain, the nearest link, his eyes not carrying to the equal beam that poises all above. Well, I'm not suggesting for one moment this evening that others are purblind, half-blind, if that's what Dryden meant, but it's certainly true that from time to time all of us miss things that others see. Now, from my perspective in retirement... I do see worrying signs that the Christian faith is being pushed to the margins. Not all the marginalising is deliberate, of course, but some certainly is. 
There is little doubt that people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchings and others are leading a deliberate campaign against all religion. Whether intentional or not, British people need to be aware of what's going on and to show its concern. Are we concerned, for example, by examples in local communities where steps are being taken to marginalise faith? No doubt very shortly we shall see read stories of nativity plays being banned in schools, seasoned greetings replacing Happy Christmas, the switching on of winter lights rather than Christmas lights by PC local authorities. Take the case of Biddeford Town Council, against which the National Secular Society is attempting to gain a judicial ruling that commencing meetings with prayer is discriminatory. The town council itself has voted to retain prayers twice against complaints from one councillor. Yet, despite this expression of his democratic will, the NSS picked on this town council, not noted for its wealth, in an attempt to force the issue. They ignore the fact that Parliament begins its proceedings with prayer and that many councils have indeed taken democratic decisions to do away with prayer or to allow the leaders of other faiths to take their turn in leading prayers. These things, I suggest, can be decided in a spirit of mutual tolerance and debate well before they reach the level of a courtroom drama. Are we not concerned that under the Human Rights Act we have been forced into a situation whereby compromise is impossible and instead we have the unedifying spectacle of minority rights pitted against each other? There's always a winner and a loser in cases like that. Take the case of the passage of the sexual orientation regulations which brought Britain into line with Europe on the provision of public services. Rejecting all compromise, the British government brought into law an act that made it impossible for Roman Catholic adoption agencies, providing a small but very valuable placement of very difficult cases of adoption to continue. Some have closed down, others have severed their connection with the Catholic Church. (coughs) Are we not concerned when conscientious individuals have lost their jobs because changes in the same act that I refer to have pushed them to the point of confrontation with the law? Take the case of Gary McFarland, a senior relate marriage guidance counsellor who was sacked because he refused to give private sex counselling to homosexual couples because of his Christian beliefs. For many years, he had performed a difficult task of counselling heterosexual couples with distinction and care. But in all conscience, what he was asked to do went against his understanding of the Christian faith. He lost his job. Are we not concerned about Shirley Chaplin, who was sacked from a job as a nurse after 30 years of doing so? because she refused to take off her cross at work, a cross that she had worn since her confirmation as a teenager. And the reason given that the cross could damage somebody. How ridiculous. She even suggested that the cross could be sewn into her uniform, but that was rejected. The cross itself had to go. What about Theresa Davies, the Islington registrar, who, when civil partnerships was introduced, refused on grounds of conscience that she couldn't preside over such ceremonies. She, too, lost her job. What about Dr Sheila Matthews, who was removed from her position of medical advisor 
on an adoption panel because she refused to recommend the placement of children with homosexual couples. What about Caroline Petrie, a nurse from Western Supermare, suspended without pay for asking a patient whether she would like to be prayed for? And I could go on, Eunice and Owen Johns, a case that started in Derby this week. So there are many more cases like that. Now, I'm not saying for one moment that I agree entirely with the approach of such people. My concern is that the religious rights of individuals are now being trumped by other rights, as well as being concerned personally that Christian people, whatever their denomination, might find it increasingly difficult to express their faith in their daily lives. And these concerns are shared more widely. Nikki Campbell, in February this year, in a BBC television broadcast, presided over a discussion, Are Christians Persecuted?, And while he concluded that persecution was too large a word, he nevertheless pointed to a series of running skirmishes between church and state, the worrying signs of an entrenched cultural warfare between the state's official religion and the state itself, the legal battles over the wearing of symbols of faith, such as the cross I've referred to, the sacking of staff, because of their refusal to act against their Christian conscience, the cry of foul when political leaders wear their faith on their sleeves. All these, he noted, were examples of a society ill at ease with faith. And while these are very well-known cases of secular ambivalence towards Christianity, behind them lies a new level of anxiety and alienation among believers. General Synod members, not generally noted as the most alarmist of people, yet a survey by the Sunday Telegraph last year found that up to two-thirds believe that Christians are discriminated at work. A further national poll by the same paper in May last year revealed that this feeling is shared more widely by Christians throughout Britain. One in five of the respondents said they faced opposition because of their faith. More than half revealed that they've suffered some form of, inverted commas, persecution for being a believer. Three quarters of those polled said that there was less religious freedom than 20 years ago. And a staggering 84% thought that religious freedom in, of, of speech and action are now at risk in the United Kingdom. And this is ironic against a backdrop of a faith that has made the most enormous contribution to our nation and continues to do so. If the present trend continues, the marginalising of faith will have deleterious consequences for our nation. So are Christians being bashed? The evidence for me points in that direction. And perhaps Dryden is right. We need to see the wider picture in order to understand what is going on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And any of you who are waverers, waverers when it comes to matters of faith, I'm hoping your faith in miracles has now been restored by the transformation of John, who previously sat in this seat, almost invisibly, into uh, my good self. Jonathan Friedland is my name, and a belated welcome 
by me to you. I thought all of you would be struggling through transport uh, as much as I just did, but clearly you have uh, a, a hotline to the divine that got you here much faster than me. So my apologies, and I will seek your forgiveness for that. Now, the Archbishop had an advantage over his rivals there, which is I didn't know what time he started. <laughs> So I couldn't be hardline about when he should finish, but I do now have an eye on the clock as I introduce our next speaker. He has uh, appeared as counsel in many assorted cause celeb uh, in different benches and bars in the land, uh, not only in this land but in the Commonwealth, frequent appearances before the Privy Council and indeed the European Court of Human Rights. I'm not sure if today he's going to be the devil's advocate but here to present the first case for the opposition, Geoffrey Robertson QC. Ladies and gentlemen, the notion that Christians are being bashed in this country was somewhat refuted by the visit recently of a Christian leader from Rome. He was fawned upon by all politicians treated by the BBC to the uncritical coverage it usually reserves for royalty. And even the tabloids showed him respect, although they were hoping the Pope would get the same treatment as Tony Blair, who cancelled his book tour after eggs were thrown at him. The Sun even had its front page ready in hope, eggs Benedict. (laughs) (laughs) And... The protests were all polite and good-humoured, with the exception of the sour-faced Paisleyite Protestants from Northern Ireland, proving once again that the only people bashing Christians in this country are their fellow Christians. They've been at it again. They've been at it again today. A leading Church of England bishop has prompted outrage after he compared those who support the ordination of women bishops to the Nazis. There it is. The General Synod has been convulsed for years by puerile debates about whether women should be excluded from the ministry, whether the place of homosexuals is in the pulpit or in hell. Ordinary decent people, Christians and agnostics alike, look on with amazement at the depth of homophobia that surfaces, at the horror of women based on some primitive idea that they're not up to offering communion during the menstrual cycle. (laughs) Catholic dogma is even worse. The Pope has announced that for priests, ordaining a woman is as serious a crime as raping a child. Although, as one American bishop pointed out, this is actually progress... Finally, the Catholic Church accepts that raping a child is as serious as ordaining a woman. Britain, in fact, so far from being an anti-Christian country, on the contrary, is a country that unjustifiably discriminates in favour of Christians in politics, in education, and in our tax laws. Every day that Parliament sits, it begins with this prayer, read by a Church of England chaplain. Lord, the God of righteousness and truth, grant to our Queen and her government, to members of Parliament and all in positions of responsibility, the guidance of your spirit. May they never lead the nation wrongly through love of power, desire to please, or unworthy ideals. Amen, and they go off and fiddle their expenses. (laughs) covet their neighbours' wives, and declare war on Iraq. In Australia, which has the Westminster system, they've just abolished parliamentary prayers and replaced them by the Aboriginal welcome to country. Perhaps we could start our political day with a Druid ceremony. (laughs) 
Incidentally, why aren't we ever allowed to see them pray? The television cameras are turned off. Perhaps, as I read from the parliamentary website, for this reason, MPs and peers stand for prayers facing the wall behind them. It is thought that this practice developed due to the difficulty members would historically have faced of kneeling to pray while wearing a sword. If only. Well, in the Lords, they have 26 Church of England bishops, 26 by rights, the Lords spiritual, no Catholics or mullahs or rabbis, so much for democracy. They're rather canting contributions and never of any consequence. But as the Church of England is the established church, it has this outrageous privilege, which is so typical of the inflated respect we encode to Christianity that the white paper on Lord's reform, getting rid of the hereditaries, didn't even suggest getting rid of the Lord's spiritual. The Church of England, because it's established as part of the state, its church courts are paid for by the taxpayer. Pathetically, it accepts the monarch as its head and allows the Prime Minister to appoint its archbishops. George Carey came courtesy of Margaret Thatcher. One might think that if the Church of England had real guts, it would disavow this pomp and privilege, follow Christ's adjuration to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but no, it loves to sit undemocratically at the heart of the establishment. And for all the undemocratic aspect of this, no one bothers to complain. Christian churches receive massive tax breaks. George Osborne doesn't dare touch them. Under our obsolete charity laws, any trust for the advancement of religion is non-taxable unless it's for Trappist nuns. But a trust for the advancement of human rights is not charitable. Amnesty International can't get tax exemption, unlike Moonies and Children of God and any other ratbag Christian sect. The revenue offers special exemptions for vicars. They live tax-free in their vicarages. Council gives a 100% rebate on council tax for church property. These tax breaks benefit, uh, of course, it benefits from running educational establishment too. The last budget bashed the poor. It bashed the lawyers and social workers and public servants. Not a word the government dare speak about bashing the churches, about reducing their tax privileges. Dissolve a few monasteries, George, and we'd all have a break. (laughs) There's no doubt, however, that Christians feel that they are being bashed. Part of this, I think, is wish fulfillment. They want to be martyred and persecuted. (laughs) But the problem these days is that they don't turn the other cheek. There's a new breed of aggressive, egregious Christian who wants to hit back in frustration, I suspect, because the churches are so empty. So instead of blaming themselves, they falsely claim that they're under attack. Incidentally, there is a piece of good news from a recent report. There is one place where where, uh, Christianity is increasing enormously. It's in our prisons. Over half our prisoners declare that they're Christian. So, uh, of course, that helps them, I suppose, with parole. What? uh, But let's... Let's get real. Christianity is fully and fairly protected in this country by our Bill of Rights. Everyone has the right to freedom of religion and to manifest his religion in belief, worship, teaching, and observance. So what do these aggressive Christians complain about? 
Sikhs are allowed to wear turbans when driving motorbikes. Big deal. Do Christians want to wear turbans while driving their motorbikes? Uh, Sikhs get exemption because it's a requirement of their religion. And uh, other religions don't have silly requirements whereby you risk having your brains knocked out if you fall off your motorbike. Rastas, uh, who may be a Christian sect, it complained that their dreadlocks get shaved off when they go to prison. So the government made a special agreement that because it was a requirement of their religion uh, that it, they wouldn't be shaven. Uh, then they said, oh, well, but smoking, getting drugged on cannabis is a requirement of our religion. We've got to get stoned every day. Uh, and the government, illogically but understandably, uh, refused them to give them exemption from the drug laws. So back they went to prison. Uh, uh, myths grow up. You can't wear a small crucifix around your neck if you work for BA. You can. You've always been able to. Uh, at one point, it had a rule against any jewellery. Uh, then uh, that wasn't discriminatory because it applied to everyone. Then it changed it, and uh, anyone now on BA can uh, wear a, uh, a symbol of faith or charity. BA doesn't bash Christians, uh, it loses everyone's luggage irrespective of their faith. <laughs> we were told, I'll finish by telling you about Mr. McFarlane, who was one of George Carey. George Carey, in fact, gave evidence on behalf of Mr. McFarlane, the counsellor for Relate. He demanded a court of five evangelical judges uh, in order to, uh, to decide it because judges didn't understand religion. Mr. McFarlane was a counsellor, a member of the British Association of Therapists, which had a rule, a code of ethics, saying that he couldn't discriminate on sexual grounds of sexual orientation. So did relate. He signed the employment contract. And then he decided he wouldn't counsel gay couples because they were living in sin, and I quote, homosexuals who do not repent will go to hell when they die. So uh, a <laughs> homosexual couple coming to relate, which was funded by the taxpayer, would be told, go to hell. Uh, George Carey gave evidence for him, said this was not discrimination against gays. It was, in fact, spreading the Christian message of love. I quote, <laughs> I quote, spreading the Christian mes message of love by trying to limit their self-destructive conduct. Well, that was uh, rejected by the court. So finally, these cases are not bashing Christians. They're ensuring that idiosyncratic and bigoted Christians don't bash gays and other minorities at the public expense. They're ensuring that Britain remains a free and tolerant society committed to equality, a commitment necessary when a body calling itself intelligence squares can arrange a debate with seven men and no women. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Moving back to the case for the proposition, which, to remind you, is Stop Bashing Christians. Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country. Uh, our third speaker, someone whose own faith has surely been affirmed recently after years of what I presume was shaking his fist at the gods who hand out the literary prizes. In recent weeks, he has instead been singing their hosannas. He is, of course, the acclaimed columnist and novelist and author 
of the Booker Prize-winning Finkler question, the man who said he's not so much the British Philip Roth as the Jewish Jane Austen. <laughs> Please welcome Howard Jacobson. <coughs> Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, if any of you have taken off your crucifixes to spare my feelings, please put them back on again. (laughs) Similarly, dog collars, surplices, and wimples. If you would rather your daughter didn't marry or adopt me because I'm Jewish, some of them might not have known I'm Jewish, Mr. Chairman. (laughs) That, too, I understand. God made distinctions when he divided the day from night, the earth from water, and you have a right to do the same. A culture is not a culture until it learns to distinguish, and it's fatuous to revere other cultures for what makes them distinct while scoffing at our own for being picky. I am not going to waste time debating whether we are or we aren't bashing Christians. We are. We have just seen it. Whether in the name of multiculturalism, humanism, atheism, or simple journalistic vandalism. And I am come among you to tell you why we shouldn't. Because (laughs) Christianity made us. That's why. All right, made you. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, with all respect, when Christianity, of which the better part is Judaism, found you... (laughs) When it found you, you were warring gangs of troglodytic tree worshippers <laughs> for whom spirituality meant dance, dancing around a goat in maxi dresses. A raggle taggle band of pagan headbangers whose highest architectural ambition was the arrangement of big stones in small circles. <laughs> and whose idea of inspiring art was a giant with a large upward pointing penis carved in a chalk hillside in Dorset. (laughs) And from that, Christianity refined you into the people who built Ely Cathedral, who listened to the music of Purcell and Handel, who spoke a language subtle and profound enough to make possible the plays of Shakespeare and arguments as persuasive as those you are hearing from our side of the debate. (laughs) Without Christianity, the English language, the English landscape, the very temper of the English mind wouldn't only be less beautiful, they would be less sophisticated. Without Christianity, the opposition would lack the moral and conceptual vocabulary with which they attack Christianity, since that vocabulary came to them courtesy of a culture steeped in it. If we think it's wrong for Catholic priests to embogger choir boys, that's because Judeo-Christianity taught us it is wrong. Thou shall not embogger choir boys. <laughs> Had we still been arranging big stones, in stones, big stones in small circles, we would in all likelihood have gone on emboggering as many diminutive headbangers <coughs> as the counties of Dorset and Wiltshire afforded. Have you never wondered what those stone slabs in Stonehenge were for? (laughs) I don't say we shouldn't be appalled when those who preach morality fail of it. I, too, during the Pope's visit, questioned the wisdom of someone thrusting a baby through the window of his Pope mobile. Mobile. Mobile? Pope mobile. I mean the car, not his phone. (laughs) 
I too wondered if he would know which end of it to kiss. Ladies and gentlemen, that joke shames me, but I make it only to understand how it feels to be the opposition. <laughs> Smug is the answer. Smug, unexacting, and not a little cheap. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, let the opposition point to the hypocrisy, the ritualised neuroticism, the sexual perversion, and worst of all, the sartorial bad taste of the church, and I will not argue. Christianity is part of life, and life is imperfect. But the way we come to know perfection is incremental. And Christianity has been so central to that process that we cannot raise a word against it without demonstrating its influence. Behold the gentlemen who oppose this motion, Christian to their boots. Did you know, for example, that Matthew Paris once jumped into the Thames to save a dog? and was subsequently presented with an RSPCA medal by Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> I honour his heroism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, had this St. Francis of Assisi de Nojour <laughs> not lived in a, Catholic, in a Christian country, there's no saying what he would have done with that dog after he had <laughs> saved it. For me to be educated in this country was to absorb Christianity. At school, the Jewish boys were shoveled into an upstairs room during the hymn-singing part of morning assembly. This did us no damage. We liked hearing the hymns, though we were not a part of them. We yearned towards the music, which was not quite ours, and so received the benefit of that double melancholia that comes with not being quite in and not quite out of a culture. A subtlety of progressive belonging which the crude idea of multiculturalism cannot begin to comprehend. Had morning assembly been cancelled or de-Christianized so as not to offend our feelings, we would have lost immeasurably by it. Whoever would damp Christianity down to spare the susceptibilities of their non-Christian citizens insults and demeans them. And disinherits them. So disinherits them of what? D.H. Lawrence, my lectures on whom, incidentally, were attended by Geoffrey Robertson when he was a student at Sydney <coughs> University in the 1960s, hence the high Anglican wit and power of his delivery. Yeah. <laughs> he made half a dozen excellent jokes and another half a dozen excellent points, and they are mine, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> D.H. Lawrence, I say, wrote a marvellous essay on the importance of hymns in a man's life. They live and glisten in the depths of the unconscious, in undimmed wonder, he wrote, producing in me a sense of splendour. The hymns, the psalms, the prayers, the miracles, the sermons, these are not mere cultural references. They have been the building blocks of our imaginations for centuries, regardless of our religion. They are the music of our half-belief and half-belonging, that which exists at a level below rationality, explanation or tribal affiliation. 
This is the stuff we carry around with us all our lives to be summoned in certain states of high excitement or dull forlornness. Sounds, rhythms, cadences, homilies and examples, grand resonating judgments that entwine themselves in our practical no less than our moral lives. That against which we weigh what we do and how we live. When atheists seek to de-religionize language, they flounder in a sea not only of philosophical but of linguistic insufficiency. Look at Richard Dawkins' rewriting of the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not, as the Seventh Commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And is there a one of us in this room who has not trembled before the fearsome simplicity of that great injunction even as we sneak out of the house to meet our lovers? (laughs) And is there one of us who doesn't accept its truth, recognising that adulterous love has a way of engulfing us in anguish, consigning us sometimes to an eternity of weeping, and even where joy is the outcome, bequeathing us a sense of the solemnity of our actions, no matter that we might have started out merely following a passing inclination? So how does Dawkins rework the seventh commandment emptied of religion's intrusiveness? Wait for it. Enjoy your own sex life so long as it damages nobody else. I am not making it up. That is what he wrote. Enjoy your own sex life so long as it damages nobody else and leave others to enjoy theirs in private, whatever their inclinations, which are none of your business. Ladies and gentlemen, was ever the seriousness and grandeur of life the sense of splendour, the tolling bell of our passions, reduced to such piddling insignificance. Sex life, for God's sake. And as for consequences, there are none, so long as it damages no one else. But no man is an island, the great divine John Donne preached, reminding us Christianly of that infinitely subtle matrix which makes each of us so implicative in the lives of others that damage is impossible to gauge. Words strike us as commonplace when the thoughts they express are commonplace. Dawkins' secular commandments dishonour and trivialise our humanity, and they don't even make adultery sound a sin worth committing. (laughs) Glory be to God for dappled things, wrote the Christian poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, Freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. Ladies and gentlemen, you choose. An educated Christian imagination, glorying in life's contrariety. Fickle, freckled, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. Or are word-deaf atheists stumbling through their relativist thought for the day? Enjoy your sex life so as no one gets hurt. Which do you want to bash? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, to oppose the motion, to reject the claim that Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country, a man who has lived uh, many lives here on earth, no matter what's in store for him afterwards. He's been an advisor to Margaret Thatcher, a Conservative MP, a TV presenter, a parliamentary sketchwriter, 
and now known to all of us, I'm sure, as a much-garlanded columnist and broadcaster, and he's told us recently, sometime night swimmer in the Thames, Matthew Paris. It's um, kind of you, uh, Mr. Jacobson, to, uh, to mention the dog rescue. I rescued the dog because I believe, as Christianity and Judaism does not believe, that dogs have souls. It's um, good of you, Mr. Jacobson, to credit Christianity with rescuing the British from uh, Anglo-Saxon woad. It was the French who rescued us, <laughs> I think, from Anglo-Saxon woad. It's always a privilege to be harangued uh, by a Hitchens, and Peter started <laughs> limbering up at 7.30 on Radio 4 on Sunday morning. The programme was called Pause for Thought, an injunction Peter has built a media career on overlooking. <laughs> among his arguments... <laughs> among his arguments, I recall... Among his arguments was the assertion that discriminating against gays is okay because it's an objective fact that gay relationships are inferior, whereas discriminating against blacks or Jews is not okay because it is an objective fact that this is sheer prejudice. I speak as an advocate of not discriminating against anyone, Jews, blacks, gays or Christians. I don't believe a Christian has any less of a right to his beliefs and practices or any more of a right than a non-believer. I myself believe, however, that some of the things taught by some Christians are wrong and that the central assertion of almost all Christianity, that there is a God, that Jesus was his son, and that no man can come to God except through Jesus, is a misapprehension. I don't believe in the divine authority of the Christian rulebook or any rulebook. Millions and millions of my fellow countrymen, perhaps a majority, though I don't rest my argument on numbers, agree with me about that. We reject that rulebook at two entirely separable levels. First, there are particular moral imperatives claimed by particular Christians, not all, with which many of us disagree. We don't think that it's sinful to shop on a Sunday. We don't think that contraception is a sin. We don't think all abortion is wrong. We don't think homosexuality is a sin. We don't think divorce is always wrong. We don't think the pursuit by scientists or the use in applied medicine of human embryology is a wrong. I could go on, but you see my point. There are concrete examples of some Christian rulings that we don't accept. But on a deeper level, what we don't accept is that the Christian God does ordain, legislate, if you like, for human morality. So even if we happen to agree with any or all of most of Christian teaching on what behavior should be embraced and what outlawed, we wouldn't claim the authority of God for our beliefs. It follows for us that in a country like ours, which is not a theocracy, Christian and non-Christian alike have an equal say in political ethics. No special regard should be paid, no special platform in public life offered, no special veto accorded to religion or its spokesman. I have, as it happens, uh, no great animus against the establishment of the Anglican Church or even the presence of bishops as legislators in the House of Lords. It's a, a nice tradition, 
and limited in its effects. But on important questions, the principle must be that in a democracy, the influence of a belief system depends on numbers and its ability to marshal support for its arguments. Non-Christians should be as free to dispute and, if they like, disparage belief as, for millennia, Christians have disputed and disparaged non-belief. In short, no privileged status for Christianity or Christian belief. Some Christians, especially the Roman Catholic Church, seem to have a problem with this. They have actually managed to persuade themselves that they are the victims of persecution. No matter that they are protected, as few groups are, by laws against vituperative language, no matter that their schools are funded essentially by the state or that they are exempted from discriminatory laws in employing staff, no matter that exemptions are made from employment and equality legislation for church workers, no matter that Christians working in the public sector have special exemptions to opt out of all kinds of duties, no matter that party leaders regularly consult, listen to, and give privileged access to church leaders, no matter that the law allows them to insult anyone on religious grounds, yet allows no one to insult their religions. For them, none of this is enough. And you don't want to know why it's not enough, because none of it adds up to the whip hand in legislation and public life that they can't abide losing. What the other side of this debate really can't stand is that laws are made of which they do not approve and then enforced equally on believer and non-believer alike. Their apparent argument may be about process, their apparent complaint about victimization, but their real complaint is that they are not getting their way anymore. The church in Britain has lost its prerogative to boss us around. In short, they don't like it up. Theirs is the self-pitying whimper of the dog that off his leash and in a dominating pack would hound other creatures again without mercy. The effrontery of the Catholic Church, an institution that for a thousand years has bullied its followers, abused its privileges, exploited the fears and ignorance of the weak, claimed to itself and its popes a divine authority to enforce doctrine and persecute heresy, an institution that, when it could, burned its critics at the stake, excommunicated intellectual or moral challenge, suppressed and perverted science itself. An institution which to this day preys on credulity in faraway places and peddles superstition to enforce its grip. An institution which in the living memory of many has blighted lives by its merciless certainties and supernatural threats, frightening little children and branding guilt deep into young lives. The effrontery of that church, now that its teachings on contraception and embryology have been rejected by huge majorities, now that its state-backed adoption agencies are asked to obey the law on discrimination against gays, the effrontery of squealing about being persecuted, let alone bashed, is breathtaking. Bashed, indeed. We gays know something about being bashed. Unmarried mothers, Mr Jacobson, cast out by Christian sexual morality for many generations, know something about being bashed. The Jews of the Spanish Empire knew something about persecution. Ask Galileo, ask Luther, ask Darwin about intolerance. Freedom of conscience, my eye. Freedom. As if they ever cherished freedom 
until the concept suited them to protect their own privileges. I'll end for the benefit of those liberals who feel tempted to accord a special shelter for faith in our public life with some lines from John Clare's To a Fallen Elm, a tree which, in Clare's metaphor, had stood as a metaphor for shelter. Thou'st heard the knave abusing those in power bawl freedom loud and then oppress the free. Thou'st sheltered hypocrites in many a shower that when in power would never shelter thee. Thou'st heard the knave supply his canting powers with wrong's illusions when he wanted friends, that bawled for shelter when he lived in showers, and when clouds vanished, made thy shade amends. With axe at root he felled thee to the ground and barked of freedom. Oh, I hate that sound. They bark of their freedom. Their gods care little for your freedom. This campaign of theirs for tolerance of their faith is not the end. For them, it is only the beginning. Give them the tolerance that they would never give you, but watch them like a hawk and give them not an inch more. I beg to oppose the motion. Thank you. Thank you. We are approaching our two final speakers, the final advocate for the motion, reminding you again that Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country. Here to make that case, a man whom faith has been a constant feature throughout his life. Sure, the object of that faith has changed a little. First, it was faith in international socialism, in revolutionary Trotskyism. Now it's Christianity and a rather unbending form of conservatism. But faith itself has been constant. He is an author of this year, The Rage Against God, and one of Britain's most trenchant columnists and distinct voices. Please welcome Peter Hitchens. Good evening. Before I begin what I intended to say, I'd like to point out in case it has escaped your attention, the rather strong level of hostility verging on personal hostility uh, towards the Christian case uh, enunciated by both the previous speakers. And to point out to you that this is itself the strongest evidence of our case. I'd say something to Matthew, whose ungenerous remarks earlier on struck me rather strongly. There's one very good thing about the BBC iPlayer which is that when you say things about me like that, anybody here can go and check to see what I actually said. And if they do so, they will find out that it was a severe and deliberate misrepresentation of my words. I'm used to it. Anybody in my position is accustomed to being misrepresented by his left-wing opponents, and of course the Conservative Party is now a left-wing party of which Matthew was an adjournment. But I'm sick of it as well. And I urge you, any of you who were taken in by that, to, to examine what was actually said, because it simply is not the case that I said what I was described as having said. I hope I shall adhere to the truth in what I say. There is a problem in defending the religion of truth, peace, love, brotherhood, and turning the other cheek under these circumstances, but I will do what I can. <laughs> as I survey 
the pleasant faces and savour the patrician tones of my opponents, it seems to me <laughs> that they are the voice of the establishment, whereas I and my allies in this side of the question are the cheeky, irreverent rebels against convention and respectability. Doesn't Jeffrey Robertson remind you, as he does me, of one of Anthony Trollope's handsome, worldly, rather pleased with himself deans? <laughs> Or for those of you who know what I'm talking about, and I'm sorry for those of you who don't, of Peter Simple's magnificent creation, the great progressive Bishop of Bevenden, Dr. Spacely Trellis, forerunner of and perhaps model for the real-life Bishop Jenkins of Durham and even our own beloved Rowan Williams. The resemblance is strong. All you need is a beard. <laughs> then there's Matthew, who's ever so slightly strangled vowels, so often heard upon the radio, always make me think of one of those stricken, tortured curates who could only swallow about 23 of the 39 articles and were always wondering about whether they could or could not resign their livings. As for Dom Anthony, has he perhaps escaped from one of the earlier novels of Evelyn Moore? When, when priests, were, priests were priests and mass was mass, hell was hell, limbo was limbo, and a jolly good dinner was a jolly good dinner. I think, in a very slightly different world, not far distant from us in time or space, that Matthew and Geoffrey might easily have been the authoritative voices of the established faith, precisely because it was established as theirs is now. I should add that what Anthony is doing here remains a mystery to me. <laughs> I can only hope that it is a holy mystery. <laughs> now, here's a test. How would it be, do you think, if I began with a prayer? How many of you would shrink with embarrassment if I did so? Let's try. See what effect it has. Let us pray. O almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that so, among the sundry and manifold changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Nobody joined in. <laughs> That's the collect for the fourth Sunday after Easter. And a hundred years ago, all your equivalents, pretty much, would have known it by heart, as I do, along with large chunks of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. Now, it rings disturbingly upon the secular ear. Because of the unaccustomed beauty of its language in an age of bureaucratic ugliness, but more importantly, because of the alien concepts it raises. The modern mind demands to know what is this stuff? Unruly wills and affections? Who dares to say that my will or my affections are unruly? I can do what I please. Sinful men, apart from the fact that this should be sinful people to be inclusive. Surely sin is a reactionary and repressive concept, years out of date. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nice chap, Jesus. A lot of sound ideas, but I acknowledge no Lord. The very word is embarrassing. And the reason for this feeling of queasy discomfort is, of course, that Britain has, in the last century, ceased to be a Christian country in anything but name. We don't read the Bible. We don't go to church. We don't believe the creeds, we don't sing hymns, we don't think Christ rose again, or that there is a life beyond the grave. And we think that those who do think this are rather weird. 
Take me, for instance. Hardly a week passes by without someone describing me, me, as a devout Christian. You might think that I go around with a barbed wire garter wrapped round my upper thigh. Or that I end each evening after beating my children severely by reciting two or three long penitential psalms. Some of you may actually think that. No, I am not remotely devout by the standards of this age or any age. I am an ordinary backslider who loses his temper and eats too much and does many other wrong things each day between sunrise and sunset, but I attract this nonsensical description simply because I openly say that I am a Christian believer. Such people are so rare in my generation and my milieu that the assumption is that we must be fanatical, excessively pious, and in many other important ways, bizarre. This situation came about mainly because of the decline of Christian faith common to most of Western Europe, but particularly severe here. It was caused mainly, in my view, by the First World War, foolishly and wrongly supported by the churches of this continent. But the fading of faith was not specially welcomed by those among whom it faded, and it suited most people to continue to behave as if we were still a Christian country. What's more, many who did not believe in God recognized the social benefits of faith and were happy to see its outward forms observed. Now we have reached a new stage. One, Christianity is in conflict with the modern attempt to replace it, specifically the human rights movement, take a bow, which is a substitute for a God who has been officially declared dead in Europe. Note his absence from the EU constitution, despite the undoubted fact that Europe as a political entity is an entirely Christian construct. This gives the liberal state or liberal supranational institutions the supreme power to order the unruly wills and affections of competing pressure groups and their conflicting desires. And also, we have the modern state ideology of equality and diversity, not only a respectable name for political correctness, but also the title of a more or less Marxist ideology in which public servants are increasingly compelled to observe certain principles which are antithetical to Christianity. Now, Christianity's message is specifically unwelcome to many people, most particularly because it tells them that there are some things that they cannot rightfully do, which they would like to do without any feelings of guilt. Some may recognize that Christianity provides an indispensable and unique force for good in society, as Matthew eloquently and very honestly confirmed when he wrote about Africa and African missionaries and the power of Christianity to liberate men on that heartbreaking continent. It would suit me, Matthew wrote in the Times on the 27th of December 2008, to believe that there, that is the missionaries, honesty, diligence and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. However, he added these startling words. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was, in turn, influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. He added, in a passage which I treasure, and which is one of the wisest things written about this subject, but which Anthony Such may possibly dislike, Christianity, post-Reformation and post-Luther, with its teaching of a direct personal two-way link between the individual and God, unmediated by the collective and unsubordinated to any other human being, smashes straight through the philosophical spiritual network I've just described, that is, of the tribe. It offers something to hold onto to those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal groupthink. That is why and how it liberates. His word. But even so, 
For whatever reason, such people as Matthew regard Christianity's prohibitions and moral authority as too high a price to pay for the great benefits which we receive at its hands. Though perhaps they think, as many atheists I suspect do, that the afterglow of Christianity will continue long, long after its sun has set and its precepts have disappeared from the hearts of the millions. I fear they will be disappointed in this, but you will have to ask them. For the plain truth is that they have sought to replace Christianity with a secular set of beliefs which are not only quite different from it, but which must, must, in their nature, be hostile to it. Now, George Kerry has mentioned some of the cases of people, I won't say persecuted, but certainly harried for being publicly Christian. And I won't go into them in detail because he's done so. But they came up against something called equality and diversity. And equality, always a tricky word, means in this case that things which Christianity would not have, tr- would not have treated equally must henceforth be treated equally. The Christian discrimination, for instance, between the married and the unmarried state is no longer permissible. Diversity means that no religion can be treated as more valid than any other, so all faiths must be treated with respect. And consequently, Christianity, precisely because it was previously established, has to suffer a shrunken, diminished status, forced to queue up along with the pagans, the Wiccans, the Jains, and the Buddhists. A small exception tends to be made here for Muslims, but that's because the new establishment is scared stiff of them. Now, this ideology is a misleading name for a powerful non-Christian movement, which cannot coexist with Christianity because it's based upon worldly utopianism, the creation of equality in this life, and because it seeks itself to be dominant through custom, culture, and law. I won't list all those laws here. You're familiar with them. This is not the place to argue whether this change is good or bad, though I have no doubt myself that it is bad, and I think Howard's contribution made absolutely plain how vital Christianity is to all the things we value, whether we are Christian or not. Our case is simply that it is taking place. When it comes into conflict with Christianity, the authorities decide and the courts rule against Christianity. Occasionally, a media fuss can save an individual, but the message to others is clear. Be careful. Last weekend's new development involving the couple Owen and Eunice Johns showed that they had been told they could no longer adopt, not for what they do, not even for what they say or think. This is really crucial for me, so please listen carefully. They are being forbidden to adopt for what they will not say. Mrs. Johns said, the council said, do you know you would have to tell the children that it's okay to be homosexual? Did you get that? Have to tell them. Have to tell them. Tactful silence wouldn't be enough. (coughs) Leaving it Sunday Telegraph, actually. Leaving it to the school or the BBC wouldn't be enough. They'd actually have to say something they didn't happen to believe. That is totalitarianism. I'm with Matthew myself. The basic case of this motion is an incontrovertible fact. A nasty new tribal groupthink is undermining the faith on which are based the unique ordered liberty of our society. Its gentleness, its tolerance... It's freedom, it's literature, it's art, it's music, it's architecture, it's great schools, it's hospitals, it's universities, it's law and it's language. As Matthew says, Christianity offers something to hold on to, as those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal groupthink as represented by the speakers against this motion. Cast off that crushing tribal groupthink, vote for this motion, defend the Christian faith against those who like to live with its benefits but will not pay their dues. Thank you.
We're, we're about to hear the last argument for the opposition to the motion that Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country. Had I not been an uh, involuntary guest of the hospitality of Bob Crow and his uh, RMT union, I would have made sure to have a conversation with all our speakers in advance, asking how they would like to be described. Instead, to our final speaker, I was reduced to passing a note which read, is there more I can say about you beyond the short sentence that appears on the programme? The note, and some of you may have seen, was passed along, and it reads in just three words, humility demands no. <laughs> Our final speaker then. Our final speaker then is a Benedictine monk and the former headmaster of Downside School, Dom Anthony Such. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I believe the next debate of Intelligence Squared is Don't Eat Animals. I feel very much that I'm in the Colosseum here, being devoured by everybody, and everybody else is devouring each other. I find this extraordinary. And may I also say that the comment about no women on the panel... Why do people think I dress like this? <laughs> I'm delighted not to have written a book or be a journalist or a columnist or a TV personality. Otherwise, I would have gone through what, no doubt, all these feel they've been through, a mangle machine. But I don't really think, I'm terribly sorry here, it's just my quiet monastic foolishness, but I don't actually think anybody's answered the question or even looked at it. <laughs> I can't quite stop bashing Christians. If the bashing is legal, fine, why not? All I wish when people bash Christians is that they get a greater accuracy and knowledge of what they are bashing. And an innocent example, not a vicious one, those I keep at home in my black book. <laughs> the New York Times, when Benedict XVI was installed as Pope, if that's the right word. The New York Times wrote beautifully about it, saying, the Pope was then handed the symbol of his office, the crow's ear. I thought, poor old crow having its ear taken, and no doubt the Vatican being attacked for another outrage of cruelty to animals. I find this utterly extraordinary. I also find it extraordinary that people are unkind enough to think that Christianity is not trying to think and deal with justice and honesty, many mistakes, and I'll come to that in a minute. But we're producing, or trying to produce, a Christian world, perhaps wrongly. But my trump card carry on bashing us for two reasons. One, as I read in the Gospel on Sunday for All Saints, the Beatitudes, the last was, blessed are you when people abuse you and persecute you and speak all kinds of calumny against you on my account. 
rejoice and be glad. Well, that's certainly the only way I'm going to get to heaven. (laughs) And also, don't we believe that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of our faith? I'm not worried about being bashed. Carry on. But take, you know, it honestly. Don't just throw out insinuations. I have been bashed twice, and I don't really like being bashed physically. One was in Edgware Road at four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon on the underground. I wish the underground had been running today, and I might have got bashed again. But I was given a, a real handing over. Two drunken people didn't like me or my Christianity or whatever it was. I don't know. The other bashing, which I loved, was standing by some traffic lights in Barclay Square on not a very nice day, and a large Rolls-Royce, chauffeur-driven, appeared, and I was waiting for the lights to go red so I could cross, and the window went down, and a child of about eight, with a pump water gun, just went... And a voice from behind him said, in a very feminine, rather beautiful way, an unfair world, Father. (laughs) I delight in all of this. This is the fun of life. This is the cut and thrust that should not be too personal. And let me say, and I believe it very strongly, Britain remains a tolerant country. I don't care what anybody says. I have certainly experienced that, and the most of the people I talk to have experienced that. And as a tolerant country, it is not anti-Christian. It may disagree and argue about certain Christian beliefs, but it is not anti. I must admit, though, my two uh, on the same side as me may be slightly nervous, so there are one or two. (laughs) I know, I know that there is a world of political correctness, but in my humble opinion, most people think they're utterly dotty. And I mean, nobody rarely laughs at them, and the nurses in my little hometown of Beckles all wear crosses. Could I give it to them as a fashion item? And the stewardesses wear crosses, and the nurses said, I'll pray for you, dear. Why not? It's like, you know, you can't walk under a tree in case a conker falls on you. And then the other day in a hotel, it said, hot pipe. (laughs) Beware, it may be hot. Well, if it's a hot anyway, this this is not anti-Christian. This is just dotted. (laughs) What about non-Christian faiths? The papal visit, and there was one uh, or two incidents, there were. Anyway, never mind. But the Pope met the representatives of all the other faiths. And Dr. Assan and Chief Rabbi Lord Sachs welcomed him. And there was a common cause of committed believers. They're not anti-Christian. So other faiths aren't anti-Christian except possibly the extremes. And what did the Pope say at the end? As followers of different religious traditions, working together for the good of the community at large, we attach great importance to this side-by-side dimension of our cooperation, which complements the face-to-face aspect of our continuing dialogue.
on a parish level and a personal level, I have no anti-Christian feeling. And indeed, a friend was telling me about these nativity (coughs) plays that are to be banned, supposedly, in Birmingham. A headmistress, I think a headteacher, you have to call her, was going to ban it. And there was a petition signed by every single parent, including Muslims, Sikhs, and atheists, to say, don't be ridiculous. How can that be anti-Christian? We're getting to the point where the media have the headlines, and we all say, oh, well, it must be the case. Let me tell you what is happening. We're beginning to pigeonhole people. We're becoming a tick-box society. (coughs) So that if somebody says you can't pray, oh, we're all anti-Christian. Nonsense. What happened to me years ago at Ealing, that lovely place full of Roman Catholics? I had been out to dinner. I think I've told this story to some of you before. And it was an old boy of my school, so he was paying. So I chose the restaurant. (laughs) And it was one of those restaurants in which the menu comes and only the person paying knows the price. So I went for lobster to begin with. (laughs) God has a sense of humour, even if non-Christians don't. Anyway, some of this poured down the front of my habit, so I returned to the monastery shamefacedly rather late, two in the morning. I hadn't got permission from the abbot And I knew that Father X, who will remain nameless, who was meant to be in charge of dry cleaning, would go to the abbot and say, Father Anthony was out last night, (laughs) had lobster. So I went down to a local dry cleaning place and had a half-hour conversation as to whether it should be cleaned as a military uniform or a ball gown, because... Because there was no place for a monastic habit, we're pigeonholing people. It's ridiculous. I have to admit that one of the things that worries me more than anything else is Christians getting at Christians. But if you're a Christian getting at a Christian, indeed it is horrendous, but you're not anti-Christian because you're a Christian yourself. So we just push that rather grandly aside. What is going on? We are living in a society that is bashing everybody. Indeed, it was lovely to read in the Telegraph the man, the journalist, who bashed the people bashing the Pope because they themselves were bigoted. Fine. Let's not be silly. We're not anti-Christian. As the Archbishop said, 71.4% claim to be Christian, Who am I to say they're not? Who am I to say that this country isn't tolerant, isn't generous in giving to others, wouldn't want to be loved and to love, to have the commandment that Christ brought us, and would want to do unto others as they would have done unto themselves? We are not anti-Christian. We are bashing them, and I'm delighted because that's the only way Christians will look at themselves occasionally and say how utterly foolish we are to be doing this, that, and the other. So although I don't agree with Christianity being, as my two fellow colleagues here say, I believe it's a wonderful religion, but I have to agree with them that England is not anti-Christian. 
And please, stop bashing each other. Just bash the Christians. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think I'm sure you'll agree we've uh, been, we've been uh, blessed this evening by six very different uh, but equally spirited uh, presentations of the arguments for and against. Now it's the time for you to uh, debate the issue and to uh, ponder. Uh, before we get to those questions, let me just say something about the format. First, I'm going to give you the uh, results of the uh, initial vote, the indicative ballot, if you like, that you all took part in on your way in. Then we're going to take questions, have a bit of a, uh, an exchange, I hope. That we will then bring it back here for final closing arguments, two minutes each, which will be delivered in the reverse order from the opening uh, speeches. And then, of course, probably while that's going on, there will be uh, a final vote. So uh, let me tell you how you uh, came down on, the, on the, these two sides as you came in. So remember, again, the debate, uh, the motion before us, stop bashing Christians, Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country. Before the debate... Those for that proposition were 275. Those against it were 183. And the don't knows, a very large number, which is encouraging, I think, for the uh, trajectory of the evening, don't knows, 181. So those are the people to play for, uh, those 181, the swing voters. And who knows, maybe we'll convert, if I can use that word, people from the other two sides. So let's um, go straight into questions. I'm going to take them in groups. There is a microphone up there. I never discriminate against people in the uh, gods. And so we'll have people up there. And uh, the first hand is here. And we'll try and get a microphone to you. And then after that, to you. Uh, my name's Keith Wardreswood. I'm the executive director of the National Secular Society. And I would like Lord Carey to explain why he wrote in The Guardian that it was an attack on freedom for us to go to the recourse of the courts over Biddeford. I cannot see how it can possibly be an attack on freedom to go to the courts unless what one wants is some kind of privilege. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, questioner here. And then if there is, is anyone waiting up there to use that microphone? Not yet. Oh, with a hand. If you go, if you head towards the microphone while we hear this contribution. Thank you. My name is Vera Lustig. I suppose I'm a, an atheist, um, lapsed Jew or something. Um, Howard Jacobson, you made an amazingly powerful and cogent speech um, quoting the I don't know, the, the Bible and Gerard Manley Hopkins. I agree, that is absolutely beautiful. So why do you want it dragged through the mud by people who despise homosexuals and don't want them to have equal rights and by Christian leaders who behave like the pigs in Animal Farm by declaring um, when it comes to the equality bill that all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Thank you. And there's a question up there. Uh, yes. Dom Anthony put forward a persuasive case by nearly addressing the motion, but not quite. The motion is not Britain has become an anti-Christian country, but Britain is becoming. And I wonder, Dom Anthony, can you really not see the... Uh, green shoots of intolerance beginning to sprout? 
Okay. Um, how, Jacobson, why don't you pick up the question that was addressed directly to you about whether you feel that some of your cherished cultural inheritance is being dragged through the mud? I didn't, I didn't by the way, say that uh, I wasn't quoting the Bible and Gerald Manley Hopkins for their beauty. I was quoting them for their ethical and psychological indispensability. And, of course, I would not want them dragged through the mud, but there is no cause that you believe in. It doesn't matter what political cause or religious cause or any cause that won't have some people that will make a mockery of it. What you do is you find what it is about a cause that you most care about and you argue for its kernel centrality. What the lunatics do around the edges, the lunatics do around the edges. Thank you. Let's put the question that came from our colleague from the National Secular Society directly to Archbishop Carey. Uh, thank you very much, and the question about Biddeford. The point is that um, Biddeford have all voted on this twice and said they want to retain prayers. And here you've got an outside body which is taking this to the court. As I said, the local council doesn't want to spend its money on a court case. The decision has been made twice, um, and I think that it's so clear enough that we should, they shouldn't interfere in a matter of that um, nature. They should allow the council to make up its own mind in its democratic way, and if they want to cancel prayers, that's up to the democratic process. Thank you. And Dom Anthony, would you like to pick up this question that came from the upper reaches yeah. there about becoming rather than is? Yes, certainly. Um, it may be becoming secular... But I don't think it's becoming intolerant. And I don't, my own personal experience is I do not see intolerance arising. My last experience was having a discussion on the radio with a humanist about the Pope's visit. And she was a lovely person. She had no problem with the Pope coming. We just don't want to pay for it. I don't think there's intolerance of Christianity. I don't think it's growing. People may be losing their practice of it, but I don't think we're becoming anti-Christian. That's my argument, anyway. Peter Hitchens, why don't you just respond to that specific distinction that Dom Anthony is drawing between, <coughs> yes, becoming more secular, but that's not the same as being hostile. Well, there is hostility. Uh, there's no doubt about there being hostility. If you read Richard Dawkins's book, you will find that he equates the bringing up of children as Christians with child abuse. Now, you may not think that children should be brought up as Christians. That's the view you're entitled to have. But to equate it with child abuse in a society in which <laughs> child abuse is regarded as it is does not seem to me to be the act of a tolerant person seeking a rational debate. But that's one person. Why it, may not, it may be one person. It's one person who's very, very popular with the secularists, as they might like to call themselves, because this is the way they feel. There is, and you, you find it in many places, a very great anger against Christianity because of the, 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 basically because of the way in which it still insists that some things are right and some things are wrong. And many people do not want to be told that anything that they do is wrong, even if they secretly, especially actually, if they secretly suspect that it is wrong. And that is, the, that is the real source of it. The sexual revolution of the 1960s is really at the root of this. The, 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 the Reichian revolution based also upon the, the, um, the, the whole... The whole 1968 general uprising against practically everything everybody believed before then comes into conflict with Christianity and it doesn't say let's coexist with Christianity in Christian countries it believes, and I think you will see this over the next three or four decades it believes in actually expunging Christianity from public debate from the public square, from the schools and everywhere else that's what it seeks to do, it is intolerant watch it work 
Thank you. There are obviously going to be many more opportunities yeah, sure. to re-engage with this. There's a lady here who's waiting. And then if, if there is another microphone, I can't see. There's a... Yeah, the gentleman there, and then we'll come to... If you bring, come forward to the microphone. Uh, well, uh, both of you, actually, since you both saw me at the same time. Not just yet, not just yet. OK. Here, you're first. Thanks. If Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country, why can't we get God out of politics? And can you give us an example of what you have in, might have in mind? Well, separate religion and the state. That's what you have in mind. Good. Um, the established uh, establishment of the Church of England. Yes, we've got one more who's waiting here, and then we'll bring it up here. This is to Howard Jacobson. My name is Adrian Pascatoubre, and I'd um, like to say that, in my experience, a lot of the things which have made our cultural inheritance beautiful are exactly about people transcending their background and being very self-critical and being, self -cr being critical about it. And therefore, the fact that we're always challenging the Christian background, which has given us a lot of what we appreciate about culture, shouldn't that, in effect, be something we ought to be rather proud of? I admit occasionally it can be done in a rather purer way, but um, after all, as John Dunn said, we don't, we're not islands, we don't know what we do quite often, so shouldn't we just tolerate that? You do, just to sharpen that into a specific, are you agreeing there with Howard Jacobson's point that this is our cultural inheritance, we should be proud of it? Or I, I think it is part of our cultural inheritance, absolutely. We can't quote anything without quoting something shaped by our Christian background. But at the end of the day, should we not also be allowed to be very critical about that Christian background right. and quite often lash out against it? Thank you. And then let's take the two who are waiting patiently. At the yes. Um, the very uh, uh, fact that uh, we're talking about tolerance regarding Christianity, that's a very bashing, bashing of Christianity. Uh, because uh, what do you mean by being tolerant to Christians is... This country is fundamentally Christian, or was fundamentally Christian, under the Judeo-Christian tradition. Myself, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and as Orthodox Christian, I can see the devastating uh, state of, uh, this, of Christianity in this country. A very simple, uh, symbolic uh, example is uh, uh, the blunt and uh, ridicule and blasphemy towards the flag of this country, which is sacred. Christian St. George's flag, which is, flag. So, which is sold as an underwear all over uh, London. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm going to get reaction to that. Another, just, another thank thing. You. Let's, let's, uh, we got the question. Let's go to the lady who's just behind you, I think. I don't want to hear anything more, isn't it? Oh, no, I, I, well, uh, we, we could, we, well, if you've got it, much it, more, but just if you could well, just it, it conclude won't harm, with the question. It won't Stop bashing people who are asking couple, questions from the floor. <laughs> it, it is a point and question as well. Yes, no, no, I you can't that. be tolerant towards Christianity to a Christian country. That means you're bashing Christianity by being tolerant Good. to Christians Thank in you. a Christian country. Good, and, and Jeffrey Robinson's going to come back on that. And then let's hear the lady here. Oh, uh, hi, my question was for Peter Hitchens. Um, you mentioned earlier in, when you were talking, uh, which I found quite shocking, that you felt that teachers should, should be allowed... To tell, uh, to tell their students that being homosexual isn't okay. Um, homosexuality is okay. And I know in America in particular, there's been a huge amount of young people that have been committing suicide because their peers are telling them that who they are fundamentally is, is, is wrong. And, um, I mean, is that really something that you'd like to encourage? More bigotry against kind of a minority and more encouraging people to be discriminated against and feeling terrible about themselves? That, to me, seems to be what's tantamount to child abuse, not 
Richard Dawkins' um, well, ranting. <laughs> okay, thank you. We'll, there'll be other chances to get in. Jeffrey Robson, you're going to pick up the question about uh, Britain as a Christian country, and the question made the point that uh, this, the flag, the flag of St. George, is a St. Christian symbol. Hold on one second, because there's something else I want to... Yeah, it, it's on underwear, <laughs> and therefore that signifies disrespect. But before you plunge directly into that, I just want to know if you accept this premise that's flying around a lot of Britain as a Christian country. Do you accept that statement, first of all? Do I accept Well, I accept that we are criticising Christians. We're not bashing them, and that's all we've heard from the other side. They're afraid of criticism. They're afraid of free speech, even though Peter Hitchens makes his money out of it. And, uh, you know, bashers do-gooders in favour of do do-batches. Who says I'm afraid of free speech? Well, Who says so? I didn't. Well, well don't say it about me, then. Stick to arguing your own case. I'll don't make up mine for, for me. You can answer the next on, question. Fantasy Britain's becoming... Britain's becoming... Britain's becoming... So his evidence... You're coming next. Britain's becoming, so his evidence goes, a non-Christian country... But not, there'd be no evidence that it's an anti-Christian country. The gentleman was concerned about St. George being on, on underwear. Um, I wonder where his dragon is positioned, <laughs> let, let, let alone the fire from his breath. But, uh, and it's true, you know, we are, we pay lip service to Christianity. There is a test. Sorry, there is... I'm sorry. Let me answer. No, let me answer your. Okay, hold on one second. First of all, we've heard from you. Second, I think the lady was referring to the pigs as characters in Animal Farm. She wasn't. She wasn't referring to them as pigs. I had a feeling somebody would react to that. Okay. Okay. But okay. All right. Let we. I know. I don't think to be. Okay. I think we've we've heard you now. I think you need. To, I think you need to be quiet now. I think you need to be quiet now. Okay, thank you. We heard the argument. I, I think you've had more than your fair say now. I think, I think you've had more than your say. I think you do have to remain in silence now. Continue what you're saying, Jonathan's question, is Britain a Christian country? Do you know, uh, we test immigrants now before we allow them nationality. They go through a test. They have to answer questions about Britain. You know what the first question was in last year's test it was who is the patron saint of Wales now who cares who is the patron saint of Wales but that is serious <laughs> seriously that uh, we, we do go through the forms of being a Christian country yes okay and Peter Hitchens the question was put to you uh, you may pick up something of what other speakers have said but that actually this business about discrimination has a serious real world effect young people taking their own lives because of discrimination particularly on account of sexuality people hear what they want to hear don't they I'll repeat what I said what Mrs. Johns who wasn't a teacher but a, a prospective adoptive parent said the council said do you know you would have to tell them that it's okay to be homosexual. Did you get that? Have to tell them. It was nothing about what they should or shouldn't say themselves. It was they actually were obliged, if the question came up, to say something which they did not believe. You may believe that they're wrong to believe what they believe. But it seems to me that any kind of state which forces people to say what they don't believe 
is totalitarian. That's what I said. What you said I said, just as what he said I said, wasn't what I said because my opponents will not argue with me. They never will. I run a blog. Half the people who write to it misrepresent me to myself. Who do they think they're fooling? <laughs> not me. Okay. And I hope not you either. I didn't say that. Thank you. If we get into being misrepresented on blogs, we'll be here a very, very no, long no, no, time. No, no, no. But um, let's, uh, I want to, Archbishop Kerry, I want you to respond to this uh, pertinent question about the separation of church and state, that actually uh, God is in politics, was the question made, and therefore in a way that renders, uh, to some extent, sort of marginal everything else we're talking about because there is an established well, I, church. I don't think you can keep God out of politics, even if we were disestablished. You take other conscious, um, uh, you simply can't do it because... The link between religion and morality is a very close one. Ethical issues, you're always going to get in, in the House of Lords. Where I was there this afternoon. There was the chief rabbi, um, who was a very good friend of mine. Um, the uh, religious leaders and um, other leaders get on extremely well today. We want a tolerant country. I'm all for that. There are certain things I can't tolerate, and one of the things I can't tolerate is this sidelining of Christianity, which, as Peter said, there's a deliberate campaign going on, led by Dawkins and others. And what distresses me about it, when you get this kind of um, attack on a faith, it stops a conversation. Now, I can have a conversation with Matthew and Geoffrey because they're listening, but there's some people we can't have a conversation with. Now, that lack of tolerance... And we must get over that. I want, if we have an opportunity, I want to come back in, in closing comments on the issue of tolerance, if I may. Do, do that in your but, closing. I think that will be a very... We, disestablishment may happen one day yeah. in our country. We may find we'll be the poorer for it when that happens. Um, in the House of Lords, the bishops do a very good job in representing many different parts of the country which has no representation whatsoever. But is it right that they're there as of right, rather than being appointed as individuals in the way that, for example, the chief rabbi has been given a peerage as an individual? Is it right that the bishops are there automatically? Um, well, yes, I think um, <laughs> it, it, it is right, and I would defend it, but, of course, we are now thinking of a house that's going to change, yes. and who knows where it's going to end up. Actually, I no, I think you're going to do I'm that in on, closing arguments. No, I, 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 I want to, because two people on this side I'm on record heard from again. trying to get the Archbishop of Westminster yes. in the... But the Vatican said no, and much to my regret, and to um, the former Archbishop of Westminster's regret as well. Interesting. Now, I want to bring, uh, ask you, Matthew Paris, to engage with this point that Howard Jacobson made and that was echoed from a questioner, that the Christianity is so bound up with English culture and tradition, British culture perhaps and tradition, that any kind of, we won't use the word bashing, but uh, criticism or critique is in some ways to turn on our own roots and culture. Oh, absolutely. The contrary. Uh, the, the, the English tradition is one of a certain tepidity of, uh, of faith Ever since um, Elizabeth I said, I have no window into other man's souls, uh, deep all through English culture has been a, a, a huge suspicion of religious zealotry. We have never been a particularly observant country. So uh, we on this side of the argument are arguing for tradition rather than against it. Let me see some hands go up uh, of, uh, of people who still want to get in so I can gauge how many we will 
get in this round. Okay, so there's somebody there, um, a hand that's up there, right at the back. Um, and there are two at the top. Why don't we start with the two at the top while a microphone reaches you in the back? Yeah, and this may be our final round, depending on time. Yeah. Good evening. My name is Dr. Christopher Schell. Um, I believe that the debate is not Christian against Christian, non-Christian. I believe the debate is ideologist or ideologue um, against scholar. And I believe that, unfortunately, the secularists uh, coincide too closely with fundamentalism. They themselves are too reliant on, I don't want to generalise, but in many specific cases are too reliant on unexamined presuppositions, not based on evidence, but developed, as Peter says, in the 1960s, um, not even on the basis of any actual academic argument or academically respectable argument, but simply on the basis of their own personal willful desires and their own preferred lifestyles. And um, this applies, for example, in the case of abortion, where a Christian can write and has written a book on abortion that has over 200 merely rational, logical arguments um, for the Christian point of view without even referring to religion in any way. Um, With from atheists, you will not get even 10 such arguments from their position, and I have demonstrated this um, pretty conclusively by writing to every single pro-choice MP um, with, okay. with these 300 points, and they did not get a single reply to a single one of those 300 points, which yes. shows that their opinion is not based on anything academic. And anybody who okay. believes in academic freedom should say boo to that. Thank you. It's the 300 points thing that may have possibly deterred them. Yeah. Um, it may be. Thank you, though. I'm going to go to the lady here. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to, what, we've got somebody there. You're ready to go. Yeah. Thank you. Would the panel agree that increasing fundamentalism in many religions today endangers our tolerance? Thank you. Let's try and hoover up all the last remaining points. There's there's a hand over there. Oh, we have one here and one then at the back. We'll we'll try and squeeze these in and then we're going to sum up. Yeah. Hello, Tony Curzon-Price from Open Democracy. I have a question for Peter Hitchens. Peter Hitchens, you, were, you agreed with Matthew Paris, and I think a lot of people would agree that uh, Christianity can be and has been a way to leave uh, rather bigoted traditionalisms. Um, but what I'd like to ask you is why you believe it's the only way and a, the right way today for many who've, you know, on, on the left, it seems to me, will feel that you've somehow copped out. There's a project of creating ourselves, of deciding our own futures, and somehow it seems you have abandoned that project, that human project of creating ourselves. What, what was it that turned you away from it? Thank you. And let's get the microphone to the back. I think, I don't know if the people have the little boxes for voting, but we might begin that process now, because people are beginning to come up against our published end time. I don't mean end time in a religious way. Um, <laughs> could you... Um... Thank you. Yeah. Uh, my name's Cole Morton. Um, the, the discussion seems to have been conducted on the basis that uh, we are moving from a position of uh, having a, a, an established Christian church into a position of secularism. What I'd like to ask the panel is, uh, for their reflection on another proposition which is that actually, although we are becoming dislocated from our historic church, if you ask the British people if they still believe in God and whether they pray or not, the vast majority do. So you've got something like you know, tens of millions of people out there who actually believe in God and do pray, but don't actually want to go to Dr. Kerry's church. That's fascinating. Thank you. Are there any last thoughts 
um, which we can squeeze in. I think we're going to move to closing arguments and summing up. Um, it would be very good if you could take on board some of those last points that were made, the suggestion that perhaps people are alienated from the church rather than from God and Christianity, uh, the notion that f- uh, fundamentalism in, in, in all religions is perhaps threatening tolerance, uh, and that uh, a question that was directly to you, Peter, uh, about whether or not there is a challenge that you're dodging, which is the notion of us inventing ourselves and uh, uh, defining ourselves. We're going to do the summing up in the reverse order, which means for your closing argument against the motion... Dom Anthony Such. You, you forgot that you were the last word. I, th- I thought I'd already argued rather effectively. Um, <laughs> I know no, that is know. not the sin of pride, it's just truth. Um, I know there are all sorts of questions that uh, hang about this uh, particular issue. You know, what is a Christian? What do we mean by anti-Christian, anti-what? Among it. But I, don't, I really don't believe that we are an anti-Christian country. And I felt that this is something, again, I'm afraid I refer to the Pope's final address, as it were, talking to the Prime Minister in its farewell at, I think, Birmingham. He said simply this, and I think it's absolutely right, and I think this is what the country is becoming. He said, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to share thoughts about what can be offered to the development of a healthy, pluralistic society. The great thing about this country is I think it's a very human country. I think on the whole it is working for human ends. We disagree about what those should be and how we get there. But to me there is a real humanity in this country and that humanity almost by definition is not anti-Christian. That's my argument. Thank you very much. Uh, for, the, for, the, for the sake of speed, stay where you are. Don't return to the lectern, but two minutes of closing arguments from you. Peter. Thank you. Uh, I was asked why I abandoned the, the project of, what was it, creating ourselves, uh, which you might describe as the left-wing project. It's very simple. I abandoned it because I saw it in practice while living in the Soviet Union. I saw Homo Sovieticus. I saw the world that they'd made by driving God out of life, out of education, out of culture, out of everywhere, and blowing up the churches and shooting the priests. And I didn't like it, and you wouldn't either. And I don't recommend it to anybody. It was a world of power worship, of unfreedom, of total lack of tolerance, of intellectual death, and indeed of many other wicked and and, and disagreeable things which are growing up in our society. But above all, it was a place without private life, without families, without the strength of marriage which Christianity sustains. It was a a society wholly alien from what we have been used to, and so much so that it would be hard for any of us to conceive that we might arrive at it. What is it, actually, that our opponents want? Nobody's asked them. I suppose it's it's not quite too late, though. Of course, we have this silly business of the votes already being counted. They ought to tell you, what is it that they want? Why is it that they have such an animus against Christianity? Why is it that they misrepresent our arguments as the scorpion stings, as a kind of instinct? What is it that makes them so bitter about Christianity? Ask them, why do they want it out? Why do they want it gone? Because it's an obstacle to what they do want. Their mistake, ladies and gentlemen, and this is going to be the real tragedy of all this, their mistake in in trying to drive Christianity out of British life is this. They will actually produce nothing new. They will simply leave a space, empty and garnished, for indeed fundamentalist Islam to step in and take over where Christianity used to be. They won't like it. 
but they will be in no position to complain. That's where it's all going. All right, thank you. Um, some support for that. To, to, to sum up his view, again, remember, against the motion in two minutes, please, or less, Matthew Paris. Well, I'd uh, firstly I'd like to join uh, Peter Hitchens in I- inviting you to listen again to Pause for Thought. I think um, uh, on that injunction we can, we can both agree. I'd, I'd simply like to respond, because I said what I wanted to say earlier on, to I, I thought a, a, a perceptive question from someone whom I think is Anne Atkins. It's all a yeah. little bit um, yeah. little dark up there. Um, I, I, thought, I think Anne is right, that you do begin to see the green shoots if not of anger against faith in Britain, at least with a certain impatience uh, with religious certainties. I I think that 9-11 has had something to do with that. Uh, I think that the American religious right has had something to do with that. And I think it is fair to say that a lot of humanists in Britain do feel uh, irritable and impatient uh, against some people of faith in Britain. And I think it's fair to say... And if you listen to Peter Hitchens this evening, you might agree that that some people of faith do feel uh, irritable and and bitter uh, against humanism. I I think there's quite a lively debate going on in Britain. I think it's an excellent debate. I don't think anybody is trying to persecute anybody else. And if there's a little anger, then so much the better. Thank you. A closing argument for the motion from Howard Jacobson. Can I just say quickly that um, it distresses me as a Jew to hear my Gentile Gentile friends arguing so vehemently with one another. The Judaism from which Christianity learnt its best um, thoughts and truth and philosophy is absolutely committed to to, uh, rational disagreement. Somebody over here talked about the importance of our disagreeing with one another. That's what what it's it's all about. That's what Judaism is about. That's what Christianity is about too. A A few questions. Why is Father Anthony on that side? You may be wondering that. Would Matthew Paris have let the dog drown had it not had a soul? (laughs) Why did he say unmarried mothers, Mr. Jacobson? Does he know something about... (laughs) And the other thing I want to say simply is... um, what, is, what's, what seems to me important about Christianity, certainly what I was arguing for is important about Christianity, in all seriousness, is its language. You have to ask yourself always, what, what, is, is, is secularism as adequate in its language to an expression of our humanity as Christianity is? And it matters to me not a jot what the Pope does or what a particular cleric does or what's taught at school. In its essence... At its core, has Judeo has Judeo Christianity got a way of describing our humanity to ourselves, which is central? I think it has, and I think so far, but we've been Judeo Christianity has been going long. So far, the mustard forces of atheism, secularism, and particularly liberalism don't get anywhere near describing what we are like to ourselves. Thank you. Thank you. 
This will be the closing argument for the opposition, and it comes from Geoffrey Roberts. Well, I've been accused up there of being on the barricades in the 60s and being full of 60s permissiveness. In fact, in the 60s, I was a student under Howard Jacobson being taught about D.H. Lawrence. He was a good lecturer, uh, told a lot of jokes, most of which he's recycled tonight. He's, he's, <laughs> he's put the Judeo back into Judeo-Christianity. But what he hasn't done in talking quite rightly about the beauty of the language and the liturgy, he has not shown that Britain is becoming an anti-Christian society. We can still enjoy all the great ethical and literary features of Christianity uh, while being a non-Christian society. And really, that is as far as anyone has gone. Peter Hitchens complains bitterly about becoming a non-Christian society, and despite having a blog and having a column, and uh, he still wants his voice to be heard over mine. Well, fine, but this is what is feared. Criticism is feared. We constantly hear of Dawkins and Hitchens, the other one, uh, not. Uh, and that really is the concern that is being expressed How far, said one questioner, should we tolerate the intolerant? Very far, but not when they claim conscience for despising, vilifying, uh, distressing law-abiding minorities, be they gays or any other sexual group, when they claim the right to override other people's rights. That's unconscionable conscience, and that's enough. You've heard a lot of stories, culled, I suspect, from the Telegraph in uh, one case, uh, from the papers, but very rarely from the courts. This is what the Court of Appeal said in relation to one case that George Carey went on about, the fact that a registrar uh, who refused to perform civil partnerships uh, was uh, not uh, allowed to work as a registrar by Islington Council. This is what the Master of the Rolls said. Miss Liddell, that was her name, was employed in a public job and was working for a public authority. She was being required to perform a purely secular task which was being treated as part of her job. Miss Liddell's refusal to perform that task involved discriminating against gay people in the course of that job. Uh, the laudable aim of the policy of Islington was, was to minimize discrimination. Uh, Miss Liddell's refusal was calling, causing offense to her colleagues. Her objection was based on her view of marriage, which was not a core part of her religion, and Islington's requirement in no way prevented her from worshipping as she wished. That is the sort of language and the sort of logic that you won't find mentioned in the press reports. It is the reason why uh, all the cases that have been mentioned that have been come to court have been dealt with fairly unconscionable consciences where they cause distress and hatred uh, to law-abiding minority groups cannot be countenanced in a liberal society. He he had the first word, and he will, under our rules, have the last word. George Kerry. Can I say, Mr Chairman, this has been a superb debate. Um, With Matthew, I quite agree. Good. Um, That's good. 
and, and probably like me, many in the audience, they find their, their agreement has been shifting from one side to another side, as I, I have, because there's much I agree with, with Geoffrey and, and Matthew and, and Anthony. Uh, but there's one missing word. In fact, Peter is the only one who's mentioned it. It's the word power. You see, every institution has got its dark side. And the dark side is very often associated with power. And when we talk about bashing, well, we have to say, and we Christians have to repent. We bashed the Jews in the Middle Ages. We bashed the Muslims of the Crusades. We, we Anglicans bashed the Catholics until they were able to have the vote. And so there's been a lot of bashing going on that we have to repent of. And maybe it's good for the Christians in this land to see power being stripped. We may find ourselves, and maybe Anthony is quite, quite right, a little touch of uh, persecution, which is uh, a word I don't agree with, by the way, because when you compare our situation with many parts of the world, we're not being persecuted. But a little bit of intolerance towards us may not be a bad thing, but maybe Anthony missed out the word becoming. We're not saying it is, we're saying it's becoming, and we have argued the evidence is increasing, not only in, with hard secularism, but in situations that indicate under human rights, and let me go back to Jeffrey now, we have a situation where only a tiny bit of tolerance could have left Shirley Chaplin, who worn that cross for 30 years to give us some freedom of movement there. And for Gary McFarlane to say, OK, you've been counselling heterosexual couples. We will rebalance your job so that we can do something. I didn't mention Liddell, by the way, Geoffrey, but I did mention Theresa Davis. And there's another case that the job changed when she was in office. Mr. Chairman's been super. Can I plug? This is my advert for the evening. And I do appreciate what Howard said about the quality, the beauty, and the language of Christianity. Can I mention next year is a wonderful anniversary. It's the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. I hope we can get behind a celebration uh, because that's so important. But William Tyndale, who died for his faith, um, uh, Cranmer, who wrote the prayer book, William Shakespeare, who built on the language that was being formed in the Tudor period. <clears throat> so can I say to the audience, note that and let's celebrate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our, our Archbishop Carey said it might be good for Christians to have a little taste of defeat and what defeat felt like. Let's see if you've arranged that for him. <laughs> As I said before the debate, there were, and you remind you of the motion that Britain is becoming an anti-Christian country before you came here. Uh, there were 275 who agreed with that and 183 against, 181 don't knows. I have to tell you that after the debate, there are 216 for the motion, 378 against, with 48 uh, agnostics perhaps, 48 don't knows. It means that the motion is rather heavily defeated. Thank you all very much, and I'm sure you're going to want to join our six great speakers here. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run. 
or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.